The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Well, let me read our scripture for us as we uh, start looking at the end. We're getting to the end of our passages here in the Psalms. I don't know if you've uh, been following along with us. But the uh, Psalms of Ascent. And um, I don't know if you've been to London in, uh, ever in your life or in years, but there's a, there's a place uh, called Hyde Park in London. And Hyde Park, even today, is kind of Hyde Park's big day. Hyde Park is a place where if you were to go on a, just any given Sunday, You'd walk into the park and you'd see a number of uh, egg crates or boxes or something that someone is standing on yelling and screaming uh, of what they want people to hear. Uh, Sometimes you'll see flags being waved, just completely different countries, and the speech is possibly more than likely a nationality, uh, nationalistic speech of of gathering, hey, let's come together around this. Uh, Others are philosophical. You can have people just calmly, maybe even sitting on the box, just giving a a, a soliloquy about some sort of philosopher. Some are religious, uh, just different religions across the board. I think you'd also find... And I remember this when I visited uh, a, a place where there was a Christian speaking. Uh, and as I remember even sitting uh, there looking up at this person and them um, taking kind of a break, wanting to ask a question and then being rebuffed and not even and ignored in some sense, uh, kind of confused like, huh, what? everybody there is speaking up. If you step back and look at the whole park, it's a bunch of people on boxes yelling what they hope for everybody to come to them and be drawn around them. It's their call to gathering. It feels a lot like possibly what's going on in our culture now. Who has the loudest voice, right? Who's the person that has the most persuasive speech that's gonna gather the most people and that proves that they are united. They have the most people, right? And just like looking at Hyde Park, is Christianity... Just another voice amongst the boxes. Feels like that often. Feels like, is it just another thing that's just kind of a grab for power? Hopefully just bring everybody in. Bring, bring the unity in, right? Well, I, I want to submit to you that when David, which is typically attributed to this psalm we're going to read, Psalm 133, when the Bible talks about unity, it does not talk about unity in terms of great things it's gathered around. They, these Psalms were a collection. I've called them a set list, if you want to call them, taken out of even the Psalms itself, which is a book of songs in the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, called the Psalms. Psalms 120 through 134 called the Psalms of Ascent. These were Psalms sung by people they were walking to Jerusalem, pilgriming, right? as they went to Jerusalem for certain festivals, religious festivals. And this particular psalm, if you read it, is is gonna remind you of something. (laughs) It's gonna remind you of driving in the car, maybe a long road trip, friend, family, whoever it is, and after a while you kinda get sick of the person. Can you imagine singing this, and here it is. 
Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. When this was sung, it wasn't like the people traveling. It wasn't just people by themselves. Imagine, these are caravans of people. And it didn't mean that they were all happy. Just like maybe even driving here this morning, you kind of drove with, <laughs> with a way maybe it feels outside, like a hurricane, right? Leftover residual rain, just kind of... Uh. Maybe you're in the car and the person or people you're around, it's just, man, we have just... I'm tired of being with these people. <laughs> it's exhausting. And yet, this is what they were singing about. Unity on the way. I want to encourage you with something as we look at this psalm. The point of this psalm isn't that you're coming into church and they weren't going to the temple being perfectly unified. Unity wasn't the linchpin in this whole thing. Unity was what they were what it's good and pleasant when they dwell in it. What the linchpin wasn't that. The linchpin is what they were brothers and sisters around. That's the linchpin. That's where their hearts were. Their hearts were broken, messy, coming to the temple, coming to church, maybe not even wanting to sing because we're so frustrated by being cooped up or by being with the people we're with because everybody has a voice. What makes Christianity different in unity than anything else? It's that it's wrapped around not a philosophy, not a politic, not an idea, but a person who became what we needed because we couldn't. And we're gonna ask this two questions in this as we look at this psalm. One is, what really is unity? Let's kind of unpack it a little bit because I think that is a huge buzzword for us today. And two is, this psalm gives us, I mean, it, talk about for us today. We are a very pragmatic people. This, is, this psalm jumps into two quick illustrations. How are we unified? How do we look different? So first, what is unity? And second, how are we unified? How do we do that? You know, the first question, just asking that, how do we have unity? I'd be really curious if we could define that. I wish we could put something on the screen. Maybe we'll do this at some point, maybe uh, throw a text out to you and throw out a word or a comment and you can list it and I'll throw it on the screen because I'd be super curious if we said, what do you think we need for unity today? What you would say? I mean, if there is what is brought out of all of us uh, and, and the coronavirus is there, but it almost seems like a backdrop of all the anger, all the infusion, all the division, all the, the stances we have on very little and very big things. If anything we talk about and we need, it's unity, right? But I'd be curious how you define it. See, this passage begins, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Brothers could be taken as a collective term of, of brothers and sisters. <clears throat> Just like in other passages in the Psalms where the Lord is compared to a mother or those type things. There's illustrations here of that. But some have said this passage actually harkens back to an old, older Old Testament thing where Families were in certain areas, certain parts of land, <clears throat> and they would come in even if they were blood relatives, brothers or sisters, and they might be at odds over a certain inheritance. 
I mean, think again about how these people traveling up from Jerusalem, these are people, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people, um, hundreds of miles away around Jerusalem that didn't even live there that were traveling to come into it. You know how you feel when there's a huge event in Nashville and everybody comes here, like the NFL draft or something like that, and everybody's coming here from a million different places, and all you do is drive around and you see license plates that are not Tennessee, and you go, God, please, why are you here? Move, you're causing traffic, and you get all mad, right? What are they doing? They're centering around a giant event. They're coming in, and they're not all happy with each other, but there's something they share. Sociologists talk about this today. <clears throat> they talk about a lot of unity through uh, one of the largest things called social capital. Something that transforms economic and political landscapes is actually social capital. That what social capital does is it decreases the transaction costs and increases trust. In other words, if you have something that you have commitment with, with someone, it doesn't matter what business you're a part of, if you have that trust deeply with them, you have something that decreased transactional cost and increased trust, that capital, bind, that social capital binds you with that person even stronger than anything else. Sociologists say that this is what it's like. And they say this about religion in particular, that in particular religious societies, that is 10 times higher in the case. Because in religious societies, there is a commonality, a trust. And its contribution to the internal whole is bigger and stronger. What this means is, across the board, no matter where you go, that as much as we get more technological, as much as things increase, as much as we see uh, the voices out there, <clears throat> right? Religious voices, and particularly the Christian one, are always going to be ones that are saying there's an impact. The cost is low because someone else has taken it. Now in Christianity in particular, there's something even heavier here. How does it, and here's the question is, and this is what's really sad. We're seeing all these businesses close, all these things happen in our city. What would it be like if all the Christians left our city? Would it impact Nashville? Is there that much of an impact of how, the way that we care for one another that it transforms, it sends a ripple effect out? That's actually what this is saying. Behold how good and pleasant it is. That it's a ripple effect that sends out. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. David Brooks wrote it on this about particularly even Christianity and theology. He was uh, borrowing from Dorothy Sayers as well, who's an a, a, a older theologian of centuries past. He says this rigorous theology delves into mysteries in ways that are beyond most of us. For example, in her essay, he quotes Dorothy Sayers, Creed or Chaos, Dorothy Sayers argues that Christianity's advantage is that it gives value to evil and suffering. Now what she's saying is, and what he's getting at here, is the fact that what Christianity does that's different, instead of saying that's evil, we need to start something that's good, Christianity at its core, what its theology is, is it goes into it and redeems it from the decay. 
This is why we sung that song. You know that beautiful song that Sandra McCracken wrote, we just sang and they sang it beautifully. Marissa sang it beautifully for it. We will feast in the house of Zion. Bring shalom. That word shalom is whole, peace. It actually means that we believe that in Christianity, God is making things whole that are not. That we don't have to look out. The difference in unity in Christianity is we don't look and go, those people are evil, we're good. It's not this, that. It's saying, we all have this. You see, notice the thing that's fixed in this verse, verse one, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is like a little grammatical question. What is the thing that's fixed in this sentence? What is the, what is the real subject of the sentence? Is it unity or is it the brothers? See, what's fixed is the family of brothers. It's not unity. It's saying how good and pleasant it is when this happens to those who already share what is. You see what's being said here? It's saying that we have an obligation to define unity differently because it's not up to our definition. We didn't define it. I didn't get to call you brother or sister because I chose it. It's because someone else made us that. Someone else brought us into their family. And so we see each other that. And so it means that, that what, it, what unity is isn't a sweet sentimentality. It's actually a mission. It's an action. It's a movement towards one another that already share things and that sometimes we look at each other and go, gosh, it's hard to like that person. I'm sure there are plenty of people who say that about me. I'm sure there are plenty of people who say that about you. And yet, what is the Bible? It, it blows me away how much the Bible talks about this as a family. It talks about Christianity as a family, that there is no only child in the church, in Christianity. And believe me, I'm actually an only child, so I'm gonna speak from this. <laughs> uh, Eugene Peterson, who is a great theologian, um, said it this way before. Uh, he's written countless books and, and things. Uh, he died uh, recently, as so many have. It seems like we've had so many people of Christian faith have passed away recently. He said this, he said, God never makes private, secret salvation. Secret salvation deals with people. His relationships with us are personal, true, intimate, yes, but private, no. We are a family in Christ, and when we become Christians, we are among brothers and sisters in faith. No Christian is an only child. Look, I mentioned this last week. Somebody picked it up and talked to me about it uh, this last week. I mentioned I was an only child, and I had a dog, and my dog was like, you know, my brother or sister, you know, like that's, that was the extent of it. And people always ask me like, what's that like growing up? You're like, mm, I don't really, I never really had a category for it. Um, you know, it was like me, myself and I, um, but it was lonely. And I'll tell you, the older I, I get, the more I'm faced with my being an only child and the ways that it really impacts not only me, but those around me. Like I see my parents as they're aging and I think, Man, I don't have anybody to share, like, how do we lean in and care for them? I don't have, uh, you know, brothers or sisters that have 
uh, a niece or nephew that can, now my, my wife does on her side and I celebrate that huge, but I don't have that for my, my children to interact with cousins. And I don't dwell on it, but it, it does pop up in my mind. I, I go, man, I really was in my own head. As much as I'm a huge extrovert, as much as I spend a lot of time with my friends, I'm different in that way in some, some ways than only, other only children might be. But it's not all about me. And there are moments, especially at home, when there'll be something of food or space in the house, and my wife will look at me, who is in the middle of three and used to a big family all together doing stuff and say, you know... This is an only child moment where I might take the last donut or <laughs> drink the last part of the chocolate milk or whatever it is, you know. Even my boys who have one another, I'm watching them seeing how they interact as brothers. That's how we are. We are not only children, and we have to learn that we aren't. And I'll tell you, as an individualistic society, it's easy for us to live in that way. This is drawing it out of us. Unity draws us to the temple to remind us that it's not all about me. If we came to church, as we can often do, and think that our relationship with God is all about us, what does that do to our relationship with God? It can make you think that what really and honestly, what do I have any need for grace? What do I have any need really for this relationship other than it's just kind of a cost-benefit analysis? Like I kind of come and love God and be with him and maybe he kind of loves me back. But there's, it's just more transactional. But God doesn't do that with us. He doesn't do that with himself. The word unity comes out of, think of this, and this is gonna big concept, Trinity. If you think about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's a huge concept. But let me distill it down on one level for us to talk about. The Trinity is perfect relationship. The point of the Bible to talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that <clears throat> there's perfect unity, perfect togetherness, and perfect separateness perfect balance in their relationship, in the way they love one another and yet do not swallow one another and are for one another. Notice that. Where do we get the idea of unity? Real unity. Where is, here's the ultimate question. Wherever your first foot, if I was, a, when I ran track, um, I had to do hurdles. And the way they determined which leg is gonna go forward is they'd make you stand straight like this and they would just come up behind you and they wouldn't tell you when, they'd just shove you in the back. And whatever foot goes forward, that's your, what's called your lead leg. That's the leg you're gonna go over the hurdle with and the other is your trail. So here's the question. If I was to come up behind you and push you on what you really base your whole unity on, what would be your lead leg? And what's gonna test all of us is coming up in about two months. When we all have to vote. We all need to, in fact, we're actually gonna do a three-part series in our church on politics. I've never done that before. We're gonna speak on it because we're not gonna avoid it. But the point is, where do we really lead from? 
Is it self-preservation? Is it vocation? Is it family? What is your ground? What is your lead leg for unity? Because this is saying, we come to the temple, we come to the church, not just because religion's important, but because God is one, three in one, and teaches us how to be the same. And he gives us two practical ways to do that. Because here's the question. That's what unity is. How do you do this? He actually doesn't stop there. And don't you love it when we get that way? <clears throat> what do we do practically? How do we do this? Well, it begins this way, it, kind of an, two odd illustrations of how we practice this. Verse two and then verse three. Verse two, it says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, it's obviously not something that many of us might be familiar with. It's actually drawn from Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible, which explains how does the priest, and in this case, Aaron was... <clears throat> is the brother of Moses. Maybe many of you have heard Moses' name before. But his brother Aaron was the chief priest. And he's, it's giving an illustration of the chief priest in the Old Testament who would have consecration. And they would make, and, and specifically in Exodus chapter 30, it explains the actual ingredients that go into this oil. So this oil that would be poured onto his head, and it would run down his face. And what that signified was a couple things. Consecration, it signified this is the real priest, the authentic, true priest, who would go into the temple and, as a mediary, be between all of Israel and God. And the oil itself is a picture of true, authentic unity. It's saying this, it's saying that it can't be faked. This is why in Exodus chapter 30, it goes into such length of what, is, what spices, what things are to be a part of this oil. Because you can't make it up. You can't just kind of throw a dash of this and that. It has to be right. It has to be authentic, it has to be true. See, true unity is authentic. It's not something that can be faked. We can't walk around faking that we care about each other. And it's easy to do. Look, it doesn't mean that every one of us is gonna be the other person's best friend. But what it does mean is that, do we realize the depth of what we're supposed to show? I think it's fascinating to me um, that in First uh, John, uh, John who's an author in the New Testament, in his, his, both his gospel and then his letters, do you know the number one expression of evangelism, like to actually talk about God, like we may talk about that, like how do, we, how do we actually talk about God? Like how do we talk about God to people who may not know God? The number one thing is how we love one another. Like his letters just talk about dripping, the oil that drips down. It's over and over and over. This authentic, rich, aromatic oil that all can see, that designate that this is the priest. That's what we're supposed to be. The authenticity of how we actually love one another 
John actually says in his letters, goes so far to say that this is how you show the whole world who God is. Not just love, but how you actually love because you have been loved. It's giving a picture of the priesthood. Peter, First Peter talks about this too. Peter picks us up and says, we are a royal priesthood. We are a priesthood of Christians, believers. And I think, I think what's hard is we've become such a pragmatic culture. What's been interesting about this whole um, event that we've been in for the last several months is I wonder how many times instead of asking, hey, how's this gonna work? We actually stop to ask, hey, how can I love? Like, how can I actually love? Or be loved? Show need to where I need love. Active love. I mean, how, how are we actually leaning into that? See, think about this for a second. To live on authentic unity, the oil has to be what? <clears throat> Excuse me, close to the who? Priest. If you wanna have authentic unity, it's not just the ingredients that are in it, it has to be poured on the priest himself. The question is, do we know what it's like to be with, close, near, up with the priest? If we wanna live in authentic unity, if we actually want to transform our city and our country and our world, it's not gonna be standing in the square, yelling as loud as we can, waving what we can, trying to draw attention. It's gonna be how we quietly and calmly love each other. Because people are watching. And they're asking, why in the world would I wanna be a part of that family, as you call it, when you can't even love one another? When you can't even care for one another? That's because our hearts need to come back, come back next to, near, close to the priest. And I almost just wanna trash the rest of my notes for a second. <laughs> Because we need to hear, do we know what it's like to be loved by the priest? The emphasis isn't on the oil. The emphasis is on the priest. And what it's like for you and I to really be loved. I mean to be loved by him. And not as some religious turn phrase, not as something that we just sing and walk away mindlessly, but that we actually Think for a second, how does he really, really, really love me? So well that he knows, as Parker said, all my videos. He knows every one of them. He doesn't have anything in common with you or me. You know that. Jesus doesn't have like the commonalities of unity that we base unity on with us at all. And yet he draws you near to love you. He wants you and I to be an expression of unity because of how we're loved. We don't throw unity out hoping 
that people just come, oh, the church is important. What, what, why in the world would this all be important? Unless he actually made us so loved that our hearts were just throbbing with intense joy because we are so loved and we have to lean into one another that we can't even stand sometimes. Because don't you know that he has looked on us in every way and could have at any point turned around. And yet he sends his own son for us. That's why it says here, the dew, verse three, It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. What in the world? Okay, another one. Fastball, curveball, what is that? What do I swing at here? That is saying the dew of Hermon was a mountain that was considered 9,000 feet tall. And Zion, which is the mountain where the worship actually occurred, was much lower. And what this was saying is that the dew would fall on both. It's an illustration of what's not exclusive. It's an illustration of humility. How unity is inclusive. Where the dew comes, see, the emphasis isn't on how tall the mountain is, it's where the dew comes from. That refreshes, that makes Zion, this is an arid, dry, basically hill flourish with vegetation because the dew would come from one to the other. Because it's not just exclusive. And in our highly pragmatic culture, Jesus is not doing that. He's not seeing who's thriving the best. He wants us to love and show unity where we need it. And I wanna throw out three things that come from this passage as practical notes as we conclude. One is that we need to pray. We need to be praying. And as a church, we're gonna actually start, and our staff has been talking about how, how can we begin praying together as a church? We're gonna begin actually just giving you little small steps that we are gonna pray and read together, same verse, same prayer for weeks. We're gonna hand you out cards and we're gonna say, can we just pray together? Because what can we do? We keep talking about what can we do? What can we pray? How do we actually unite by looking together in need? A heart that's praying isn't a heart that's saying, what do I need to do, do, do? A heart that's praying, I'm so convicted of this this week, is a heart that says, I need, need, need. I need the dew, I need the refreshment. I need you to refresh my soul. And the second thing I really think we need is humility. Because if that's true, then we need to humble ourselves and not think that we have it all figured out. If we're gonna love people, it doesn't mean we are the ones who know how to love perfectly. We have a God who's done that. Jesus stepped into our world to show us that we don't have it figured out. It wasn't enough for him to send a word or stand on a box and yell and hope we come. He got down, he got in the mix, in flesh, because you wouldn't come to him without him coming to you. He brought unity through his body. And you know what, that's what this table is. The last thing here, 
in this passage. Notice it finishes with this. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. You know, this, this whole psalm ends with a future tense. It ends with what is to be ahead. Did you know our unity now around this gathered table is supposed to be a picture of what heaven is like? We're called to give people a picture of what heaven is like because we come to a table and we gather around it and we have no, no chops of our own to come to a table and feel like we could gather around this by ourselves. We couldn't do this. We, it, this table isn't about the loudest voice wins. Think about it, it's the opposite. This table is about the one who submitted himself so low to death itself. Unity surrounds around humility, not ours, but the humility of God himself. You wanna know really how you're loved? You wanna know what's really gonna transform you for true unity? Is that when you take this bread and this wine and you realize that the person next to you, whether you know them or not, is wrapped up in the same body and blood. That's why we call it communion. What are we doing? Community, that's where it comes from. Can we show that? Can we show this truth to people? This blessing, this is because this isn't our reality until this is our reality. This is our future. Let's show this city, this world, what we really believe in and what our true future is in Jesus Christ.